All right. Let's uh, get this show on the road. Here we go. Let's say a prayer to begin. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would, through your love, draw us after you, that desiring what you will and what you command, we may also love what you love. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay. Did you get a handout? Do you need a handout? There's uh, a couple more over there, I think. So here's so there's a couple of things I want to do to catch up. First of all, I, I had included this painting last time we met, and I, we didn't get to talk about it. I was I just wanted to get your uh, insights on it. Can you see that? Is that big enough to see? So this is a painting by a mannerist painter. I don't know what that means. A mannerist painter named Bronzino. I came across this painting because he also painted another painting called the Allegory of. Eros and Venus, which um, academically is a really interesting thing to consider. It's a, it's sort of a, it's a grotesque painting. Uh, I don't want to show it to you, um, but it describes what happens when when Eros goes wrong. So Eros or Cupid um, has this incestuous relationship with his mother Venus, um, and in the painting you see this allegory. So all of these other figures from Mythology, uh, fate, and time, and uh, and and uh, fortune—they all have—they all have this role to play in the allegory, and it's a disaster, right? So Cupid, so Eros and Venus are having this this uh, sort of strange uh, this strange moment, and all around them the world is crumbling, right? So uh, it's this great depiction of when you pursue passion for the sake of passion, Eros for the sake of Eros, it can go wrong. Anyways. He painted that painting, and, and he also painted this painting, um, another very instructive painting. This is the, the deposition of Jesus from the cross, um, which is equally as instructive. Uh, so take a look at it. What do you see? What do you see in this painting? Mary. Mary. It, where is Mary? The yeah, right here. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yeah, and, 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 and he does. He he looks healthier to me. I I was observing that yesterday. He's also very clean, right? He's not he's not very bloody. Holly. Uh, Sure. You know, he's a little more full, you know, exaggerated. Right. And you get a sense of that, too, in the angels above, right? They, their forms are exaggerated, right? He doesn't have any wounds. He does have wounds. They're difficult to see. Um, you can see in his hands right here and right here. Where's the side? There. It, it, it's just it's slightly right there. Yield. Uh... <laughs> You also can see his face has some scratches on it. If you look, if you, but in, in real life, this painting is enormous. Eight feet by ten feet, something like that. Are the angels up top carrying away nails on the left? Yes. Yeah. They're, so they're carrying the instruments, carrying away the instruments of his death. So this one has the spear in the middle, and one of them has the nails 
Um, I'm sorry. This, fe- this fellow right here has the nails. So these guys over here have the cross. What do you suppose that is on the left? It looks like a, it looks like a nail. It does look like a big nail. It's as big or bigger than the cross. That's interesting. Right. So I, it, can't, it can't possibly be a nail because th- he has the nails. I wonder what that is. But again, if it's, it's an exaggeration of shape. Yeah. I'll have to look it up. I don't know. I don't know. It looked, yeah. It looks like a nail. It looks like a nail head. What's the name of that? Bronzino. A really cool name, you know? What, what, else do you, what else do you see? Somebody else had their hand up. Beth, did you have, Beth, did you have your hand up? I got an answer. Okay. I'm trying to clarify who Mary was. Okay. What holding Right. Mary's holding him in the middle. But who's the man? John. 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 The beloved disciple. And Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene over here. You can, one of the reasons you can tell, Mary Magdalene is always, her hair is always emphasized. It's, there's, um, how would you describe her hair? Long and curly. Flowing. It's, it's, it's luminescent almost, right? It's really bright. She looks, she reminds me, interestingly, a lot of, um, I showed the high schoolers a painting by Lucas Cronach, a Reformation age uh, so early 1500s painter um, of Adam and Eve, and Eve's hair is the hi- is one of the highlights of that painting, and it looks a lot like Mary Magdalene's hair. Um, what does that describe to you? What does that tell you about Mary Magdalene? She liked feet. Um, uh, n- maybe, maybe we don't. There's not a direct identification, right? Uh, but what was Mary, what we what do we know about Mary before she met Jesus? She was a prostitute, right? Um, and the, and so you see, you can see the connection in in the painting by Chronic of Adam and Eve. I should have pulled it up for you. Um, Eve has this really sort of seductive look on her face. She's enticing Adam. It's a curious painting. She's just seducing Adam, and Adam's sitting there looking like a little bit confused about what's going on. It's it's a great <laughs> painting. Um, uh, Okay, so now, uh, what else do you notice? Who belongs to the pink cloth? This is, belongs to Mary Magdalene. So that's her, that's her headpiece that she's taken off? Yeah, yeah, probably. There are more women than men. There are a lot of women, that's right. Yep. Um, good. What else do you notice? Dude in the way, way, way back is wearing a baseball cap. He wearing a baseball cap, okay. Um, I think that we have Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. One, one is... Shoulder, on that far uh, arm to my right, something's on his shoulder. Something's on his shoulder. Look at that. It looks like there's tassels or something. Yeah, so uh, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, right? Um... It, this could be so. If this was say this was Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man. Him holding the nails would make sense. And Nicodemus, notice if this was Nicodemus, it's a bit darker. Remember the story is he comes to Jesus in the night. He's a bit ashamed of, but he's bearing. Well, he's got a big jug to anoint to anoint Jesus. I don't know. I don't know. Could be you know. Oftentimes, helmet on. Perhaps. Perhaps. Um, 
Okay, now, now take a look at these. So obviously these are the central figures, right? Uh, think about the way that they're looking at Jesus, the way, the way that their, their bodies are posed. How would, what are your observations about that? Okay, like this little girl right here. And the woman on the other side. You're talking about her? Yeah. Okay. And one woman almost looks like she's swooning. Right here? Yeah, no, no, below. I'm sorry, my shadow, look at my shadow, there we go. Okay. And then the other two women above her, it's almost like they're somewhat distracted too. They're having their own. They're having their own conversation. So, th- so th- you have a distinct contrast between what's going on in the background and what's going on right here, right? What do you, what are, about the, these three? What about those three? They're honed in on him. Locked in, right? It's triangular, right? It's it, this. This pulls us together. I mean, it's it's very formally satisfying. Imagine that these two characters, John and Mary Magdalene, weren't, weren't there. It would look odd because Mary couldn't, couldn't hold Jesus on her lap like that. But she notice how she's holding him, like, like a child, right? Holly? Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting that Mary Magdalene has it. Right. In that, because of his, I don't know, because of his death, she regains innocence. Absolutely, that's right. So one of the so one of the great points of contrast is the relationship of Mary, the mother of Jesus, to Mary Magdalene. So they come at Jesus from two complete polar opposite stations in life, right? So Mary, who is declared from the beginning to be blessed among women, and Mary Magdalene, who becomes blessed in Jesus' death. Um, and yet they both, they both have this uh, direct attention to Jesus, but their faces are different. Their looks, the, the look that they give to Jesus is different, right? Um, and, and I think that you can see in it, so I just suggest to you um, that you can see in it this range of expressions of eros, Okay, uh, of desire. So Mary, not not with a look of self pity, right? She's not saying to herself, "Woe is me, I've lost my son," but she's she's pitying him, right? Um, and and then con- contrast that with uh, Mary Magdalene, who's looking at Jesus, um, who later will uh, you know cling to Jesus' garment in the garden because she. Uh, she needs him for his for his person. What about John? What do you think about John? Show me. Is it John the one we just see the head of? Right here. It looks like we just see his head. His head is not attached to his body, is it? No. It's not, he's not the same it is the same person. Yes, it is. He's, the way he is, he's using his neck also to as a. Yeah. Why do you suppose he'd be doing that? His head is so small. And- Okay, so entertain for me the, the, the idea that this is all one person right here, <laughs> and that it's John. But so part of the part of the 
I think, I think you're supposed to see in it a sort of a distorted sense of physics. Because what is John, what, suppose this is John, what is he trying, in, in lifting up Jesus, what is he trying to do? Or, yeah, or get as close to him as possible, right? I mean, his face is smushed up against Jesus' shoulder, and presumably his, his own shoulder and is as well, right? Um, another, another interesting you know, angle on the notion of eros, right? So we hear about John in the gospel reclining at, reclining at table with Jesus and how he was resting in Jesus' bosom, right? Holly. He does not look stressed, you know, like someone would be looking up a hundred, you know, yeah. man. Yeah. It's, it's a different kind of look, so like, um, it's peace. In, so, I mean, you might even say... Yeah, so in, in being in contact with Jesus, he, he's in contact, he's touching his peace, right? Holly. Did you say the lady was above Mary? I don't know. She, like, the, when you talk about Eros, like, she has this look of love and not, it's, I don't know, it's unusual. It is unusual. She's looking at him with this face of, not sadness or pity, sorrow, none of that. And he almost has, like, a behold. Or a surprise. No, she's, like, looking down. You're looking at her right here. So to me, she looks like she's, um, I'm, I'm less charitable towards her. I think that she, especially in contrast to Mary, is just sort of observing the spectacle of it. Oh, look at this, look at this thing to see. She looks out of place. She does, yeah. I think, I think so. She goes with the Cubs player in the back, right? She's probably the artist's patron. That's, could be, absolutely. You have to stick them in there. Yeah. Well, then that would be, I mean, to think about the politics of it then, yeah. too, right? So you've got to get them close, but not, you can't supplant Mary and Mary and John, right? Okay. Do you have any other comments or thoughts about this? Yeah, Donna. It's a good question I get, especially from the uh, characters in the front. It's a very affectionate, especially Mary Magdalene. Yeah. The expressions on their face. Yeah. It, it, all of them, the, that's the first impression I got. That's right. They really love this person. That's right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I find so compelling about it is they each love Jesus so much, each in their own way, right? Each in their own way, and you can see it in their face and in their in their in their posture. Except the lady in the middle. We don't know about her. She was probably the one that supported the painting. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what uh, that's about the patron, right? Yep, exactly. She does. Okay, well, I'll be I'll be more charitable to her soon. She doesn't quite know how to act. She yeah. Okay, she's never seen anything like this before. Nobody's ever painted before. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's more for the for novelty than anything else. But I think it's um, one of the things to observe as we're reading Song of Songs and studying Song of Songs. I think you you have to come away. Um, looking at everything that you see in the world um, through the same lens that you would look at Song of Songs. So you say, uh, every story that I encounter is in fact in some way a love story, or love is at stake. 
and what does this story teach me about love? Is it true, so think Lin-Manuel Miranda, right? Is it true that love is going to overcome everything? Um, And if it's true, then what does this tell me about how God loves me, how God loves his creatures? Um, because Pastor Nelson and I were talking about this before, and there's, you watched the film last week by the, the company Ecce. Um, it was about the, the hands, right, the cathedral hands. Um, in one of their films, they were interviewing um, a great uh, philo- philosopher and theologian, Peter Kreeft, at, at uh, Boston College. And he's sitting by the seashore on some rocks, and so there's the sea behind him and the rocks and, and he, that he's sitting on. And he says, why are we so attracted to the sea? And he says it's because it, it resembles the archetype, this, it, this underlying design of the world of the relationship between male and female, right? So however you want to parse that is one matter, but the fact is there is underlying everything we see um, the truth of God's love for us, right? Uh, at times it's really obscured, and in sin it's completely obscured. But you have... Uh, now seeing the picture of what that love looks like in death, in Jesus' death and resurrection, and so now you have a whole new, a whole new angle to come at the world. Um, so I encourage you to do that. And I was, as I was uh, going through the last two weeks, I couldn't help but think of some more stories where we see um, attempts at navigating the problem with love. Remember, the main problem that we experience with love are its limits and especially death, right? We talked about a whole bunch of stories that are that way. Um, I want, it's curious if over the course of the last two weeks you've encountered anything that, that brought that to mind or that, that, you, that struck you, any stories you've heard or seen that struck you that way. Perfect, then I'll tell you my stories. Uh, have you ever, raised, raise your hand if you've read The Giving Tree, Shel Silverstein, The Giving Tree. Okay, so rehearse with me how this story goes. Do you remember how, how, how it goes? There's a boy in a tree. Yeah. And he sits under it and enjoys it. He sits under the tree and, and inscribed. I, I tried to bring it this morning, but somebody lost it. We ju- we, it was there two days ago, and now it's gone. So uh, inscribed in the tree is a heart, and it's me plus T, right? Me and the tree, right? He's a little boy. He loves the tree, and the tree was happy. Okay? Then what happens? Yeah, the boy grows up. <laughs> One interpretation of it is that he, he just, uh, uh, it's an abusive relationship, right? So he goes, he goes away and he comes back and the tree says, would you like to climb into my branches and eat my apples? And he says, of course I would. That would be wonderful. Um, and play in my branches. And then he, he goes away and he comes back and he's a bit older and he doesn't, isn't satisfied just to play in the branches and eat the apples anymore. He wants to make some money, right? So he carts off a cartload of the apples. Um, and then he comes back and he wants a house. He, the tree says, I would love for you to play and sit in my shade. And he says, I don't want that. I want a house. So the tree says, take my branches, right? And so he goes off and he builds a house. Um, finally, I can't, I can't remember all the, the intermediate details, so he grows up, grows older. He's got a family now. Um, he wants a boat, so he chops down her trunk, right? Then he goes away, and he comes back, and in the end, he's an old man, right? There's nothing left but the stump. And uh, he says, uh, they have this conversation, and she says, I have nothing left to give you, right? Um, but he's, he says, I just want a place to sit. And so he sits down, and the tree was happy. 
I can't stand the book. I'll just tell you. I'll just tell you. I'm going to expose my biases right away. It makes me sad. Um, but but I'm curious. How, how, there are there are a wide range of interpretations of this story. How do you read? How would you read that story? How would you how would you take uh, the its interpretation of love? Tina. Went over this, but I think at every stage the tree was happy. Yes, absolutely. The tree happy to give the apples, to give the branches, to give the trunk, mm -hmm. and then to be the stump. That's right. That, that, so absolutely. So so in one in one sense, who are we to impose on the tree the notion that in order for it to be happy, to truly love, it needs to be full and have branches and leaves and fruit. Um, and in fact, in the act of Giving the, tr the the tree finds its self, right? Its happiness. Yeah. It's not God's love, is it? I don't know. Is it? <laughs> I wondered if it was the I don't remember it anymore. I do read it, but I don't remember it. Yeah. There's a. I, I just this morning discovered a whole uh, wealth of really high, like high literature critical reviews of this children's book, right? <laughs> um, People taking it very, very seriously, and, and I think actually, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to make fun of that. I think, in fact, we should take it seriously because it does, it teaches, right? So the question is, what, what does it teach? At least it's ambiguous. Um, what, what else do you think? Tell me your other, your other thoughts, Krista. Yes. Um, and uh, I think perhaps there lies uh, in, in uh, giving and, uh, and forgiving. Sure. You know, with, with each. A section what he took from the tree. Mm -hmm. um, he was he was satisfied in a certain way. That's right. To, um, you don't hear from. Well, say it again. He he uh, it, he he received what he needed at every stage of the yeah, story, right? You you know because it's uh, and he uh, the tree is not disappointed in a certain way. No, right. Uh, perhaps he doesn't have a heart or what what uh, you know. And I think in each situation. Is a tree is Yeah, think about so think about biblical parallels. Would you think? Can you think of any stories in the Bible that resemble this story, other than the main story, the Bible? How about the How about the prodigal son, right? Um, I wish you were dead. Basically, give me give me my inheritance right now. I want I want it. Uh, we don't hear about how the father feels at that point, although we do know that he just stands there waiting, basically, for the, for the son to come back so that he can give him more, right? Um, so, so, so with that in mind, there's a, there's, there is, however, a limit to the story, right? There's an, there's an end to the story. Um, it's missing something. It's, it, um, what, so what is it missing? What does it need to actually give us a, a true picture of love? Yes. The, the boy needs to do something. The boy, he doesn't give. The boy does not ever give to the tree. Sure, right. So, so you could imagine perhaps a sequel, a sequel, right? In which you know, at this point in his life, he's un, he finally understands how much the tree has given for him. Impossible as it may be to imagine, so maybe he can do something for the tree, right? Maybe. He doesn't, he doesn't even say thank you. He never says thank you. Yeah. Which is a real bummer. Yeah. It reminds me of, of us, mm -hmm. humans. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how many times do we say thank you?
That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Brittany. Yeah, just to go on that, I was thinking the same thing. It's just, uh, I think we're naturally so selfish. It's a selfish love. It's what can we get? And it's, you pray every night, but then it's like, when you really need something, at least it's like, oh, my God, pray a little. Yeah, oh, yeah. And like, just thank you. Yep. And it is, it's, yeah, it's just very selfish. I was, we were watching, so we've been watching the TV show Taxi, you know, with Danny DeVito and Andy Kaufman, <laughs> which, is, which is interesting in a lot of ways. It's great. Uh, there's, a, there's one episode where Danny DeVito's character, Louis De Palma, who's this scumbag, right? Um, he needs to have surgery. And it's, it's, it's the stereotypical scene. He's lying in the hospital bed, and Alex, his is the kind-hearted fellow in the story is there, and he says, "Alex, I want you to hear what's going to about to happen." And he prays this this you know ridiculous prayer to God. Um, he promises, you know, he makes promises to God. If you get me through this, I'm going to be a nice person, right? Um, so on the one hand, it's just completely cliche, right? You see it coming a mile away. You know how this is going to go. It's funny nonetheless, and it's funny because it's us, right? Even though we're not, perhaps not as crass as Danny DeVito, um, none, it's, it's funny because it strikes a chord, right? We, uh, we, we, are not, um, we are more like the boy in this story of the giving tree. There is one other thing that's missing, which I think um, is missing from a lot of stories, and that is the fact that the tree uh, is not alone. The, the tree in the story is alone without the boy. Right? So this is why it's not a true picture of divine love, right? Because God, who loves you fully, completely, is not alone in his loving you, right? He's not, if, if you fail to uh, return thanks for him, he's, he's at a loss for you, but he is not alone. Um, and, that, and, that, and in fact, that uh, relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this divine, eternal love, is what enables God to give past the point of what the tree could give, right? Because he's not, it's, not just his, it's not just, you know, this solitary monolith, but it is uh, a divine economy of, of always self-giving love, right? Um, it, uh, so that's, I, that's notable in a lot of stories. We, there was another story we read. It's just like The Giving Tree, The Stick Kid. You ever read that one, The Stick Kid? This guy, I'm... I'm this will be my last one, I promise. The guy draw, draws a picture of a stick kid, and he's so proud of his stick kid, and then he says, well, my stick kid needs some, some friends. So he draws some, and the kid says, uh, you're, not, you're not enough for me. I need some stick people like me. So he draws some stick friends. And then he draws a stick family, and the, guy, and the stick kid goes off and, come, and goes away. And he's, and he's sad and lonely. But then, he come, then the stick kid comes back with his family, and it's, oh, it's kind of happily ever after. But what's missing, of course, is the fact that the author, the, the artist of that stick kid, is not alone. Right, um, so this creation, this this beautiful thing, is not the product of like God who is lonely and desperate, but God who who can't help but love eternally because this is what He does from eternity, um, it, it, which is I think one of the best ways to redeem the love stories that we see in the world is to say this is this gets really close and here's what would save it, if is if it was divine love. Could we take the stump uh, just a step further in? It has saplings. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So there is... So it could have branches that are coming up around the stump. Yeah. 
So it's not that. It is, it is in the way the story is told that you, that you see the, the finitude of it, but the, the storyteller might not always know right. all the possibilities, right? And that, again, this is the, the character of divine love. You write the story of Jesus dying on the cross, and if you were going to write it, that would be it. The story would be over because you can't imagine how, how God the Father can raise the Son from the dead, right? Um, which is why it's not our story to write. I have another thing I want to show you. Did, Holly, were you? Yeah. No, I was going to say, you know, giving trees like, can be depressing if you feel like you're the one always giving. Right. But we're not alone in communities. So Absolutely. Our fruit to yes. you will never be that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. And, and which is the great gift of, of this community. This is why, or of any community, in fact, um, and again, go back, going back to the notion of an archetype, when we understand that the love that we give is not purely our own love, but it, but it comes from God through others to us, all of a sudden you... Um, you're opened up to this, this realm of wealth of possibility, right? I don't have to manage this on my own. I'm not going to run out, however much faith that may take to believe, I'm not going to run out because it's not my own, right? It's just like when, Jesus, when Peter asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Well, he can only imagine forgiving so many times before he just gets fed up with it. Well, it's not his forgiveness, right? The forgiveness that he's forgiving with is endless. Aaron. Trap it is, and whether you're a parent or you know in charge of people at your work or just loving the people around you, it's it's like I know I get trapped into like really wanting people to be thankful. Yeah. And um, and it's like there's just this temptation all the time to be recognized for your selflessness and your giving, and it's like, and I think that's the thing that's most frustrating about the giving tree story is that. It's like the tree is always kind of, maybe now they'll love me. Yeah. You know, and I find myself being that way. Like, oh, if I do this, then maybe finally, like, these people will be like, wow, that was so great of you. Like, yeah. But the reality is, like, most of the time when we're loving people, and it's like a real, genuine love, the result is like, okay, you know, <laughs> all right, see you later. Yeah. Do my own thing now. Give up all these things, and most of the time, they don't even realize. That's right. You know, and it's like, it, but it's like, get, if you can get over the point where it's like all about <laughs> what you get in response. This is, and here again is the distinction between our perception of love and God's perception. So, um, what is to God? What is gratitude for His gifts? Do, do you, can you can you pinpoint it? What is it? What does it mean to say thank you to God for His gifts? How does that look? To receive them, right? To, to receive them. So if you want to say thank you to God for his body and his blood, you go and receive his body and his blood. So, so then now translate that to the story of the giving tree. Uh, the gratitude of the boy, as far as the tree was concerned, all throughout was simply in the fact that the boy received what the tree was giving to the boy. Didn't say, you know, I don't want your branches. I don't want all of you. Um, and that's, I mean, converting that, putting that in our lives to be willing to say the gratitude is the acceptance of the gift. Because, I mean, and especially when the gift is not accepted, you know, that's, um, this, is the fra- this is our frailty. This is our weakness. Um, 
And, you know, again, this is why it's so helpful to, to think about how we navigate these problems with love. How we, the, the ways, on the one hand, that we and the world try to push them out of the way, try to pretend that they're not there, um, and how God actually deals with it, right? So here's how God deals with it. He says, yeah, you're not going to get it. You're not going to successfully give uh, of yourself 100% without expecting anything in return. It's not going to happen in this life, but it's going to happen when I glorify you. You have, you have something incredible to look forward to. Um, and you get, you get these glimmers, these glimpses of what that looks like now so that you can hardly imagine how great it will be when that's all the time. You know, when that, that's, I mean, that, that is the gift of uh, relationships to us is they give us a glimmer of what it's going to look like. Donna. I, I like the fact that Paul um, described uh, Christ, our body, or his people as a body. Yeah. You know, we, we all have our special um, gifts, and we have our special ways of giving, but then we all work together, so we get to. I mean, the body works as a... Yeah. It's just wonderful to think that, you know, you're part of a body. Right, right. Absolutely, yeah. So even though, I mean, we're selfish and we'd like to get... But, I mean, we can count on that because God has given other people things for us to have. Right. Yep. Yep. And and that fits perfectly with the promises that God gives in Scripture that um, by his grace, this actually, it actually does happen in this world that, that you love. As Christ's body, as Christ's people, you love. You do it. And it's good. Okay. So... Uh, <clears throat> You know the jazz standard, all of me? Frank Sinatra sings this. I, all of me, why not take all of me? I'm going to play it for you real quick. Um, so you got the words on the back of your sheet there. It's just a, just a classic song, right? Um, true, a, a true love song because you get this expression of, uh, of pure gift, right? I will take all of me. I've got, I'm not good without you. Take the part that once was my heart. Why not take all of me, right? Uh, and this is, this is the, the, an expression of the, the excesses of gift and desire. So in, in all the conversations that we're having, we're talking about how love finds itself in the excess, right? Not in the, not in the moderation. So you have a quotation about the philosophers. Um, so for, Arist- for Aristotle, for, the, for, the, um, yeah, for, for those of Aristotle's school of philosophy, virtue is found in the middle, Right in neither extreme, but in Jesus, you see love exists in the excess, and we know this innately, right? It exists in the excess of gift and desire. So here it is, the excess of gift. I thought it was uh, just peculiar and really kind of cool than the Cole Porter song, All of You, okay? You, have you ever heard this one? We heard Ella Fitzgerald sing it on a record just at home, and it struck me. She sings... Um, well, how does it go? I don't have my sheet in front of me. Right, and and finally, it, the turning point for me is when she says, um, "I would like to, I would love to have complete control of you." Right, which sounds like a really creepy thing to say, except in the context of a love song. It's so it's it's okay, but here again, the excess of uh, desire. Right, you have on the one hand all of me, the excess of gift; all of you, the excess of desire. So it turns out that that song. I can't wait to do this. It turns out that that song, All of You, 
is from a show, Silk Stockings. Have you seen Silk Stockings? With, with um, Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse. So we're going to watch a scene from this. It's, I'm not going to preface it, but here's where the song appears. It's just great. It's, there's so much to think about. We'll probably have to pick it up next time I talk to you, uh, but enjoy it. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, uh, so I, we can't just leave it at that, though. So th- make some observations. What, have you, what, do you th- what, no- what do you notice that's relevant in that scene? What does that have to do with what we've been talking about? Holly. Yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, you can't, you can't, I suppose, I think, help but read it in terms of the divine story, right? Which it casts it in a whole new light to see how playful this, this uh, attempt at wooing might be and how cold and callous we are, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, great, absolutely. And, and persistent. Pers- yes, that's right. You go and go and go and you don't get anywhere, right? And uh, he resorts to, he, he will use every method possible, right? Kathy. And I think there's a lot of uh, freedom when you allow God to lead. Absolutely. Oh, so think about, I mean, you saw the transformation in the dance. This is really, um, it's not surprising. It's really, um, again, kind, kind of predictable as these stories often are. But you notice how as she eased up, he was, he was leading her and then he would spin her off and she would do the steps on her own, which is such a beautiful image for, so in sync with him, right? So he's no longer, he's no longer controlling her, her steps, but uh, she's in sync with him. And those are the most beautiful moments in the dance, right? So he invites her into this dance and she joins in. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, I think. And when he kisses her, she says, that was restful. That's, yeah. I mean, I, do you hear Song of Songs, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, right? Yeah. Beth. I just said that he continued to love her. You know, he felt so strongly in his love that yeah. rejection that she initially gave or put off and that he just kept pursuing. That's right. That. And we heard a love story like that yesterday from a woman who said her... Her husband just was so in love with her right off the bat, and then she didn't like it. She said, I just didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. He went off the war, but he was so sure he came back, and hmm. they ended up, you know, being married and living on which together. It's amazing that, you know, that love was so strong. That's right. That's right. And, um, and, and, and so, so when he loves her so fully, all of you, right, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the response is. He's going to give that love regardless. So to the point of here's another great part of the image. He's going to dance by himself, you know, as though she were there with him, um, regardless of whether or not she is. One, I think one of the great things about musicals or one of the sort of enduring appeals of musicals is the way that they get us to suspend our disbelief, right? So uh, you notice, of course, that he, they're singing, which people don't do. Um, and then who has that kind of a dancing space in their living room, right? Fred Astaire does. But um, the, the, it's actually a really helpful thing when we sort of evaluate love stories and our relationship to God is that it, it does require, in a sense, a suspense of disbelief. To say, this, what, what God is describing to us is something that, we can, that appeals to us, that can draw us in, um, but it requires, it requires that we transport ourselves to 
you know, a different realm where, where faith is at play because this is not how it goes in real life most of the time. It does seem, well, so I should have made that exception, except for Dave. <laughs> um, so there you go. Anyway, uh, think about these things. Uh, yes, in real life. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions? We'll talk about Song of Songs next time. I can't, I can't speak for Pastor Nelson. Next time I'm with you, we'll talk about Song of Songs. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you.